Today's episode is sponsored by Bittrex, a cryptocurrency exchange. You'll be hearing more about them later on in the show. But for now, let's get into my interview with Harley Bassman and Joseph Wang. Extremely happy to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Joseph Wang and Harley Bassman. These two gentlemen have been extremely right about the bond market, which has sold off this year in a historic way and taken everyone by surprise. The sell-off in bonds has been at the, that's been the eye of the storm for the financial mayhem that investors have seen this year. Joseph, you are a uh, senior, former senior Fed trader for the New York Federal Reserve. Harley, you are uh, the creator of the Move Index, an expert in fixed income derivatives. Uh, Joseph, you're the author of Central Banking 101. And Harley, you uh, are the managing partner at Simplify, where uh, you have an ETF that hedges against bond sell-offs, and that has done extremely well. So given that both of you, you know, Harley, you actually have developed a product uh, to hedge against interest rates going above 4%. And Joseph, you've been saying to everyone you can, you can talk to that interest rates, the 10-year is going to go to 4%. Given that we're very close, the 10-year started this year at 1.6%, 1.7%, and now it's at 3.8%. We're so close. Uh, it's really been stunning just how much the sell-off has gone. What is your outlook on can it continue? You know, Are you as bearish on bonds now as you were at the beginning of the year? Joseph, let's uh, start with you. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here and great to see you again, Harley. So, you know, that's a really good question, Jack. So I, I, my view fundamentally is that interest rates are based on supply and demand. And if you look at the supply and demand dynamics, it's very clear that we have tremendous amounts, basically unlimited issuance coming up in the coming years. And it's just not clear at what price the market will clear. So structurally, I think we're heading into a world where interest rates trend higher. Um, there's a, there are fundamental reasons as well. As, as I think I've mentioned before, I think we're going into a world where inflation will be structurally higher uh, for a number of reasons that we can talk about later. But at, at the moment, though, this is what I'm seeing in the market. I'm seeing that something broke in the gilt market in the UK and authorities came and they came and they backstopped it. And when they backstopped it, you saw the treasury yields drop in sympathy. So global bond yields, they're tightly connected with each other. So if something happens in the Europe, it will also reverberate in the treasury markets. So I'm getting the sense that as, as the higher we go, there's more systemic instability. So something will probably break. Throughout the year, I've been suggesting that would be the treasury market. That's because that's what I focus on. But I think the other sovereigns are also pretty fragile, as we see in the UK. And right now, what I'm looking at is what's happening in the Eurozone. Um, Robin Brooks has a, has a very, very good chart showing that over the past few years, the ECB has been the, basically the sole purchaser of uh, Portuguese and Spanish, uh, Spanish and Italian debt. So that suggests to me that as they step away, there'll be fragility there as well. And that suggests that they, perhaps the ECB will come and backstop uh, their bond market. So that, that, all that sovereign support from other sovereigns, including the BOJ, which has yield curve control, I think puts kind of a soft ceiling around maybe a bit above 4% where, where we are. Eventually, I think we go above that, but it, it seems like that, that might be holding um, global yields down for the moment. Harley, what do you think? Well, guys, glad to be back. I think last time uh, we did this, I, I was in St. Bart's. Uh, we were recording this puppy. So, uh, you were on your yacht, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. Um, well, you know, I suppose, you know, when the Fed breaks the toy, that's how it all ends. Um, I'm not going to say that we've broken anything yet, but 
I think the Treasury market is kind of right there, very close to it. And why I say that is not having to do with rate level or, or even the curve. It's, it's just the move index at 150 is just off the charts. The move index, um, which is the VIX for bonds, um, generally is 80 to 120. It's kind of the, the range over there. To get into the 50s, you require the Fed to, to go and step on the market, uh, which they've done. The, the times you've seen the move get into the 50s is when the Fed, um, I, I, like when Greenspan did a measured pace or QE, um, and when you get up above, one, above, above 120, above 150, you're in, in panic zone. We've been clicking at 150 for like, you know, a few weeks now. Um, this can't last. And I say it not because of fundamental idea. It can't last because people can't do it. The move is a real number. So 150 is an annual volatility of interest rates across the yield curve. You divide that by 15.9, call it 16 for gentlemen, which is the square root of 252, the number of days, trade days in a year. So 150 divided by 15.9 is nine and a half. You can't move nine and a half bips a day every day for, 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 for a month. Well, I guess you can in theory, I suppose, but I mean, it, it just doesn't happen. People get exhausted from this. They, they just, everyone just cleans out all their positions and they get close to home because they just can't take the, they can't stomach the risk anymore. So that's kind of what I'm seeing has been the interesting thing. What's, what's anomalous is the VIX is like under 30. Um, we're down 20 odd percent, but it's been a very gently decline, you know, um, and there are reasons why maybe it's happened and we haven't had some kind of crash yet. I'm not saying, and frankly, I don't think we will. Um, but there's an anomaly here that the, the rate market is what's kind of disjointed. Right. So the move at 150 implies uh, uh, that the 10-year treasury yield will move something like uh, nine basis points a day. You say in your piece on Convexity Maven uh, that move of 9.5 basis points a day, that's a volatility that's unsustainable because human beings cannot tolerate such stress for long periods of time. Can you explain the, the logic of how that results in the system blowing up? I mean, not system blowing up per se. Usually things, we get there and things chill out. The Fed does something or something happens in the market to go and relieve things. I'm not talking about ordinary people buying treasures for their account. This is not retail. Um, and it's really not even the Fed. This is just, you know, Wall Street, and professional investors who are moving money around, it's just, it, 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 movement's that big, you can't get a trade done. Uh, a market maker is terrified to go and put a bid on more than 50 million tens because he might wake up you know, a second later and we're down to half point. Um, so basically you lose liquidity. It's almost a self, uh, uh, a circular process. And then clients, hedge funds, speculators, they can't take the mark to market risk anymore. Margin uh, uh, requirements go up. So it just, the system just closes down on itself, which is a good thing. I mean, it's the same idea of the cure for high prices is high prices. The cure for high volatility is high volatility. People just stop taking risk, which is, which is a good thing to do. We're, but I mean, you're asking what's kind of not broken. What's, what's, what's not right? It's the treasury market. Um, and that's because, hard to remember this, but, you know, barely a year ago, um, Powell said, we're not taking rates up until spring of 23. People relied upon that and they got levered upon that. Um, and now they got to unwind that leverage. Um, and, and they're trying back and forth to get, they're, they're trying to leg out of the trade, which of course never works. Waiting for everyone to get close to home to find where the, the level of the market is. Now, as far as what that level is supposed to be, uh, I, I publish a, a commentary every four to six weeks. 
It's free. Uh, go to convexitymaven.com. You can find it right there. Send me an email. I'll add you to the list. Uh, I propose that um, twos at, 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 at 4.30 in the auction last week, that that's it. Well, that's it as far as we know. And I say that's it because that auction lined up with the uh, Eurodollar futures, uh, Fed fund futures, hitting around 465 for next year. Well, that was the dots rate. That was the level that was indicated by the, by the Fed. So if we've already fully priced in a 460, and they've said that's where they're going to go to, and that's a 430 on twos, I think we're okay there. What we've got to find out now is, is inflation going to go down or up from here? And I mean like next January, February, when this 460 rate becomes active. If, we're, if, if, if inflation is down to, you know, from 8, 9, down to 5, they're not going to be cutting rates, but they will stop taking them up. But if we're seeing rates and inflation still, you know, at a 5, 6 level, they're going to reevaluate and probably, you know, notch it up again. So we, we, we're not going to know what's going to happen until by January. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, yeah. And I want to add to, to, to your comments about the, the move index. So in your publication, which is really good, everyone should subscribe, you have a very good chart that shows just how extraordinary the move index is right now. So the level of move index we're at right now is comparable to what was in during the great financial crisis in 2008 and during the extreme moves in COVID during March 2020. So we are really, the bond market is basically panicking right now, but we don't really see it in the equity market. So a lot of people who are watching this maybe don't really have a grasp of how to measure liquidity. But one way to measure liquidity is price volatility, for example. Because if you have poor liquidity, what you get is you get very large price movements. So looking at the VIX or the move index is, in, in some sense, a measure of market liquidity as well. So I, th I think that was a really good point. So, guys, at the beginning of this year, the two-year treasury, you guys were very bearish on it. If I had asked you both, uh, would you buy the two-year treasury, both of you would have said, Jack, hell no. But now, Harley, that you, you evince the view that 4.6% could be uh, peak hawkishness. And Joseph, I've heard you say this before. Would you say the two-year treasury is something of a buy? Is it, is it a safe place for investors? Uh, and you know, the, I guess the ETF is, is SHY, where people could just buy it, earn the coupon, and you know, the chances that they have a, total, a positive total return is, is high. Uh, what, what do you think, Joseph, and then Harley? No, well, first of all, we don't give investment advice, of course, on, on this channel for entertainment purposes. But I, I, think, that, I think I agree with Harley. I think the risk-reward is, is in favor of uh, when you, if you, you know, the two years are around 4%. Uh, because another way that I think of this is that you could have somewhere an accident somewhere. Maybe there's an, a geopolitical escalation. Maybe something in the financial system crashes. And if that's the case, uh, it's very likely that the Fed might actually start thinking of cutting rates. So uh, on the one hand, it seems like with inflation at its current level, it's unlikely or not that we would go a lot higher than 4.6%, which is what the dot plots have, as Harley suggested. But there's also this tail risk that we could go lower because something somewhere in the, in the world, uh, you know, something bad happens. So you get that insurance as well. So uh, I think that, that the risk reward is, is favorable for, for that. What do you think, Harley? You're right. We can't give investment advice. <laughs> I will mention, I, I did buy uh, this two-year uh, last week. Uh, I, I, I mean... I feel pretty good about this because um, <laughs> if I'm wrong, because no, if I'm wrong, it has a DVO one of two, so I can't get wiped out. Um, and, and, and by the way, it's all I live in California, so it's it's state and local tax free. So you're really talking almost a five um, pre-tax yield for for full faith of credit of the U.S. government. I mean, I have no problem with that. 
Um, I, I, and I don't know what's happening to stocks. You know, it's just there, there, there's two or three trap doors in the stock market. And I'm not saying it's going to crash, but for them to go a lot lower. One is, is, um, is earnings. We just don't know. If, if earning, current earnings are like, what was it, 230, 235, somewhere in there, 15 PE puts you at 37, 3600, fine. We, we've already kissed that. So the case can be made if earnings stay solid and rates don't go a lot higher that, that we've seen the, uh, the lows. But we're not sure what earnings are going to be over here going forward. Uh, and they could really trap door down. Uh, the other thing is that the back end of the curve can go up a lot. Um, I'm not saying it will, but it could. And if it does, that 15 PE is toast. Um, and this is why, you know, the uh, hedge products that I've, you know, offered, you've mentioned, uh, is just so valuable. You, you, you don't buy insurance because you think you're going to go and crash. You buy it because you might crash. Um, uh, buying rate insurance is not because you're bearish on rates. It's because you're bullish and might be wrong. And, and, and we just don't know. And, and the real question here is, um, um, how solid is inflation for real? What's the core number going to be, you know, six months from now? People talk about going back to two, maybe, you know, oil prices, gas prices down, Putin gets shot. I mean, you know, we, I mean, we get $60 oil in a heartbeat. Um, but I mean, there's wage pressures seem to me to be, you know, pretty solid and housing despite, you know, backing off a little bit. I mean, OER lags. I have a hard time seeing these, um, the actual CPI headline print really dropping a lot just because it, its structure is so it's a lagging indicator. And Powell has tied himself to the, to the, to the, to the mast of this. He, he, he made a gigantic mistake in not starting earlier. He's behind the curve and he wants his reputation. He wants to be Paul Volcker, he does not want to be Arthur Burns. And, and, and maybe it's just as simple as pure ego, which is fine. Um, and that could, that could be it. But I mean, he, I just can't see him taking cutting rates. I can see him stopping rates. I can't see him cutting rates until he has that print, that newspaper journal headline saying, you know, inflation down a lot. And would that print be 2.0% CPI? What do you think, Joe? Well, you know, I, I agree with you that he's going to really want to try to keep rates high for a while. He's been very clear about that. It seems at the moment he has the entire FOMC on board. There's a team effort to tell everyone that we're not cutting rates next year. We're going to keep it high. We don't want to repeat the mistake of the 70s. So um, we're going to have to, in the 70s, what happened was they, you know, kept rates high. And then when inflation came down a little, they cut rates and inflation immediately roared back. So they don't want, they don't want to repeat that mistake. So they want to keep it higher for longer, as they say. Now, what's, what's the, what's the level of CPI he, he needs to see to really actually start to cut rates? You know, it seems like he wants to see at least substantial progress, so probably a string of CPIs much lower. Uh, I think it's also it's about the direction. Are we trending lower and is the improvement material? I don't know if he actually has to see a 2% print. But so I think that's the economics and, and that's the theory behind what they're trying to do. What would be very difficult for them, though, is just the amount of political pressure they're going to get uh, once it's once we, let's say, 
different, maybe to 6% or 5%, then it becomes a lot more of a gray area and maybe unemployment takes up higher. So just this past week, we have the United Nations coming out and begging Powell to <laughs> cut rates or not hike it. Everyone and their mom is going to be calling the Fed, please, please, can you can you just cut rates? That, there's going to be a lot of pressure for that. And I know there are members on the new members on the Board of Governors on the FOMC who may be more sympathetic to labor. So uh, they, they might be difficult to get on board as well. So um, I think the right thing to do would be to stay higher for longer. Um, but there is a possibility that because of political pressure, once we start getting just a little bit softer CPI prints, maybe labor unemployment rate just goes up a little bit more, uh, we might see a Fed, you know, pivot in a sense. So that, that's a political aspect. It's, it's really hard to make a decision on that based on based on just economics and markets. But I think that that's a real possibility in my view and maybe even a probable case scenario. You know, I, I think you've got to see a four handle on headline CPI and a two handle on um, on, on, on core PCE. I think, he ha- I think he needs those numbers before he does it. I think this there's plenty of, of people, my, 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 my good friend and partner, uh, Mike Green, who will tell you that, you know, inflation is about to go into the tank um, via various measures, Rosenberg, Lacey. They're all saying the same thing. We're, we, all the indicators project lower. And you know what? They might be right. The problem is the Fed shot their bullet with transitory. They are no longer allowed to w- use their models. They got to go look at the newspaper print now to go live on that. And, and that means they're going to stay too tight for too long. But... The credibility got blown with transitory, um, and therefore they got to wait. So I'm, I'm thinking four-handle headline and uh, two-handle uh, core, uh, core PCE. Oh. Mm. Thanks. I, I, Harley, I, you, you posted a great chart, uh, I, th- I think it's actually from Jim Bianco, of what year-over-year CPI, consumer price index. So there are two measures of inflation. Most people care about CPI. The Fed cares about PCE. Uh, and then there's, do you measure it based on the sun yearly or do you measure it based on the moon uh, monthly? So this is what <laughs> yearly CPI will be based on what forward inflation will be, like what the yearly will come out. And if there is zero inflation for the rest of the year, by March of 2023, the spring of next year, CPI will still be at 3.3%. That's according to Jim Bianco's chart that you know, it, it may be from a, a few weeks ago. But basically, if you take that uh, 4%, if Fed needs to see 4.3%, unless we have outright deflation, which is it's very rare to have deflation after having 8% inflation to go from 8% to negative, that almost sort of guarantees, dangerous word in finance, that the Fed pivot will not come uh, until at the very, very late, earliest uh, the spring. There's a difference between cutting rates and holding rates. Right. So I, I, my, my idea is that they're going to hold rates a little longer than we think, that the market pricing in the, the Fed cuts next summer is not going to happen. That, 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 that is not saying they're going to take rates higher. Now, that is a possibility. If we, if we still have inflation coming, coming at 5, 6, then they'll be taking them higher. Um, mm-hmm. But let's just assume that, that we are in a, a, a nice recession by then, which is going to have, and it's the housing market. I mean, you know, hey, hate to ruin the surprise, but it's housing that's going to go and break. It, actually, the toy's already broken in housing. The retail mortgage rate, you're at six and a half percent. You were at three. You were two ninety a year and change ago. I mean, the, the the what it costs for a house. Housing prices need to drop by thirty percent um, to make all the numbers cash flow flat. Now that's not going to happen. We're not going to have thirty percent in housing for a lot of reasons. Dodd Frank made it so you had to have money to borrow it. You you, you couldn't borrow money with a, a liar loan. So and, and people have huge um, uh, equity in the house because house prices up by thirty forty percent in the last few years. Um, 
And on top of that, no, and no one's moving either. There's, there's really no supply. You can't leave your house with a 3% mortgage and buy another house with a 65 mortgage. So you're stuck in your house, which is not a bad thing, by the way, but you're stuck in your house, so there's no supply to really dump on the market. So prices aren't going to go down. But it means that if you need to spend more money, a higher percent of your income on housing means you spend less somewhere else. That's how you get the less demand for goods and services because you're spending more money on, instead of spending 28%, you're spending 40% on housing. And that's how you get the recession from housing. Just to walk people through that, uh, through that math, this is from your piece. At the start of this year, interest mortgage rate was at 3%, so you could buy a $455,000 house with a monthly payment of $1,900. Uh, not bad. But now that the retail mortgage rate is at 6.5%, I actually think it's, it's slightly higher now than, than when you wrote this, uh, the same monthly payment of $1,900 can only finance $300,000. That's why you're saying houses prices need to crash 30% to get to that uh, affordability level. So, uh, gentlemen, it sounds like if I were to ask uh, each of you uh, what were what would be the first to break the bond market the stock market the housing market or the labor market or the real economy? I think I already know your answers, but could you say what you think is the first to break and why and uh, Could we start with you Joseph? Oh, as I've been saying throughout the year I always thought the Treasury market would be the first to break there was the most fragility there, but it seems like So as we saw the guilt market broke, it's not the Treasury market, but bond markets are connected. So we kind of see, at least in the periphery of the global sovereign bond markets, the cracks starting to appear. I suspect that the Eurozone bond markets would be next. So that's where I see the fragility. I would actually, one one comment too. So we are often very US-centric in how we view the world. And we focus on our stock market and on bond market. But something else that's happening in the world is there appears to be a lot of, based on the strong dollar, there seems to be a lot of money moving into the U.S. And that could be very supportive of U.S. assets, such that if there is something in the, in the markets that breaks, it may not be here, it may be somewhere else. Uh, for example, um, let's say you're a Japanese investor and you were invested in, uh, the, in the S&P 500. So from our perspective, we see the S&P 500 down a whole lot since the beginning of the year. Uh, but from the Japanese investors' perspective, um, they, they, uh, the yen has also depreciated a lot. So from a yen pers- in, on a yen basis, they're actually not really down any. And you could say the same thing for someone who's from Europe. So even though the U.S. investors are sustaining losses, if you're a foreign investor, you know, the U.S. still m- makes a pretty good sense because you're making money off the currency dollar appreciation. So th- that could be supportive of U.S. both bond and stock markets not the only thing that matters, but if you have serious geopolitical tensions, it, it could be significant. So, um, so yeah, I, I, about the uh, other markets, the labor and the housing market, I'm going to defer to Har- Harley. His thesis sound, makes sense to me. I think the bond market's already broken. I mean... Well, that's what the move index says. We <laughs> got the move. I, I mean, the, the front end's going, going from 25 cents to foreign change uh, in, in, in a year and, 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 and a quarter. I mean... I'm not, that's not broken. That's that's something, man. Uh, you know, tens from from a buck and a half to four. That's that's. It, it's not broken. It's 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 something. So let's just always say that rates have already moved. Okay, um, and they're they're getting to where they're supposed to be. What happens in the process usually is bonds break, stocks break, housing breaks. Um, housing is like Wiley e. Coyote. It runs off the cliff and doesn't know that it's in the air until it looks down a little bit later. Um, 
a lot of reasons for that, uh, primarily because it's just a massive lag in housing. I mean, you're looking for a house, you put in the bid, and you know it takes three or four months to close the thing. So data we're seeing now is still from four months ago. Um, and on top of that, when you get the initial, the initial rate rise, you see people rush to buy a house to, and pet to lock in the, the mortgage rate. So you see it's like a surge in housing. It takes a while for things to cook on through. Housing's already dead. It just doesn't know it yet. Um, uh, stock market then goes next, um, and it goes next for two reasons. One is higher rates, significantly higher rates, will reduce the PE. Now, what I said last show and the show before that, the show before that is watch out for the correlation of stocks to bonds. For 20 years, we've had stocks and bonds like this, right? A negative correlation of price to price or positive correlation of stock price to bond yield. As it gets confusing, I apologize, but that's, we, we have to do it mathematically, bond yield, because we can't use bond price. So in any case, I've said that if we get rates above four, you're going to see that correlation flip. So your 60-40 portfolio goes in the tank. Well, here we are at four, and this correlation is more or less flipped. Um, where you're seeing both go down at the same time. Actually, bonds are it down. It already happened. It didn't just happen above four. It happened on its way to four. This year, if you had buy, oh, I'm going to buy SPY, S&P 500 stocks, and I'm going to hedge it with 10-year uh, treasury notes or TLT, longer duration bonds, that worked historically. But this year, it's been absolutely abysmal. And actually, you know, days where the Nasdaq is down the most, there's also days where long duration stuff is down down the most. Uh, what's, this, what's the significance of that, uh, Harley, when the asset that can be relied upon to provide sort of a, a positive carry put, a, a natural hedge, bonds, is no longer there. And it's, it's turned from a friend to investors to, to an enemy. I'm not sure why you say relied upon. Historically, if you go back before the Fed came in, you know, your correlation was zero. I mean, for, for the 70s and 80s and 90s, I mean, that correlation went up and down. I, I mean, I think I have the chart on my latest commentary. You know, it's just when the Fed came in and jammed rates down and put their foot on the, on the market that you got this kind of a positive correlation. Um, so we're kind of going back to the future in many respects. And of course, higher rates was because of either inflation or the Fed releasing the market. Um, the biggest problem is leveraged money. I mean, uh, because if you borrow classic risk parity is you have 100 bucks, you put 70 bucks in stocks, 130 bucks in bonds or some number like that. They offset each other and you get a, a nice portfolio that's it's a, a softer risk. Well, once that correlation flips, they go up and down together. You have 200 bucks of assets going down on 100 bucks of capital, which means well, you lose all your money. Um, so you're seeing the unwind of this right now. And we've seen twice before when this has happened, the Fed came to the rescue uh, December 2018 and March of 2020. You saw stocks and bonds go down together and the Fed kind of jumped on in. Um, they haven't jumped in yet, and they're probably not going to. So um, that makes it more challenging for people to lose on both sides of the equation. Um, so, uh, look, housing's going to chill. It's not going to collapse. Stocks, are, I, I think, go down. I th I'm not sure. I think go down. Rates, I think, go up. I mean, we've kind of gotten to where we're supposed to be on the front end. So now we've got to, look, we're at the poker table. We've just got to go wait for the next card to get turned over. And, and everyone wants the answer today, but... We're not going to know until we get that Jan Feb CPI report. I mean, right, Joe? Right. Yep. Yeah. Everyone's going to be watching that CPI report. You know, I, I, 
my sense from looking at the market is that everyone is still praying for that Fed pivot. So even if we come in just a little bit softer, I think that people will be like, yeah, inflation is going away. Fed's going to pivot. Let's go to the moon, you know. Um, so we'll see. It, it seems like that, that's, that's the eternal hope of the markets. Um, I, I would also add to Harley's comment on, on housing that from, from what I read, there's a tremendous amount of supply, new construction that's going to come online, and that's probably going to put further pressure on prices. Housing seems to be, be a lot like other um, say commodity sectors where prices are high, everyone goes to build, you know, the cure for high prices is high prices, whole bunch of people build, all that supply comes online at the same time, and poof, prices go, go lower. Um, something that that I thought was really interesting about the, the end of the 64 days bonds as hedges is that, well, investors still need structurally to hedge their portfolio somehow. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Harley and Joseph. Just wanted to let you know that today's episode is sponsored by Bittrex, a cryptocurrency exchange with a focus on security and trust. Bittrex offers lightning fast trade execution on over 150 different digital assets and is protected by security practices that lead the industry. If you want to venture into crypto, I want you using Bittrex. It's an original in the space and has all the tokens that you want to trade. What more do you need to know? So click the link in the description to learn more and tell them I sent you. Now, let's get back to my conversation with Harley and Joseph. So going forward, Harley, do you think that they're just going to maybe rely more on the options market or, or how, how are they going to manage that risk? Because, I mean, if, if you can't rely on bonds as a way to hedge your equity exposure, how, how are, if you're a big portfolio manager, how would you go about structuring your portfolio? I'm not sure I would call it a hedge. I would just say you reduce leverage. That's number one. And number two is you, um, you, you bring in your tail options. So you don't own as much high yield because that's trapped door to zero. Um, so you go by IG, by, by IG five years as opposed to 10-year papers. You bring in the duration. And for stocks and bonds, you, you, you get a more diversified portfolio as opposed to being all NASDAQ. I mean, let's remember, why does NASDAQ follow the bond market? because the big FANG stocks are basically 70-year duration bonds. Like, we know Amazon or Apple or whatever, they're going to make a trillion dollars in 30 years. Okay, we know that, boom. What we don't know is, what is a trillion dollars 30 years from now worth? You need a discount factor to bring that trillion back to today. Um, and and, and that, that's kind of your PE of, of sorts. Um, as rates go up, you discount at a higher rate, and therefore the present value of a trillion dollars is less. That's why all these big NASDAQ, you know, uh, animals are coming down with bonds. It's not, a, it's, it's not a statement against their businesses or the quality of management. It's just a mathematical function of discounting cash flows 30 years out. Yeah, and I think also incorporating commodities can be key. I think risk parity is stocks, bonds, levered, taking advantage of the correlations, but commodities sometimes can be. So I know, you know some risk parity funds have, have done pretty well this year because they, uh, but yeah, the 60-40, that's just had an abysmal, absolutely abysmal year. Uh, Harley, you have a product at Simplify called uh, the Interest Rate Hedge uh, ETF. The ticker is PFIX, and that is up on total return basis year to date. 80%. That you know, there are ETFs that I, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not be to disparage anyone, but they have names like the inflation ETF and they own inflation stocks and they're, you know, and maybe they've done a little bit better than the S&P 500. They maybe they were down 5%, the S&P was down 20% or 25%. But your thing is up 80%. So can you speak to uh, why you wanted to specifically structure your trade, which is like a, I think a pair swap option or basically a put option on a long-term bond instead of doing other stuff, uh, other varieties of inflation hedges? 
By the way, what I'm trying to say to you is congratulations, Harley. You did a very good job. <laughs> yeah. Guys, pull up the chart. It looks like a rocket. Yeah. I, I need to thank the Fed, okay? I got to give them all the credit for, for screwing things up. Here's the deal. Um, I designed a product. We designed a product that it was direct drive interest rates. Rates go up. This ETF goes up. Rates go down. This ETF goes down. That's it. Everything else out there is kind of, you know, blind man touching the elephant. Like they're trying to go and buy, a, buy something that will move with inflation or with interest rates or something else. Tips were trading at negative one and a half percent last year. They were not going up. There's no star. There's no inflation big enough to make them work. You had a negative real rate. Um, yeah. So right, right, sorry, Harley, let me just explain. So tips are treasury inflation protected securities, and they're essentially treasuries adjusted for inflation, as, as they sound like. And, and so the real rates uh, last year were negative one and a half percent. So now real, real rates are positive. So yes, you made money on the inflation, but nominal rates moved up more than inflation expectations. So tips, you know, you made more money, you lost less money on tips than uh, you did on regular treasuries, but you still lost money. Yeah, I mean, I mean, people buying gold or commodities or I mean, I'm not saying they're bad investments. They're not direct drive interest rate. As a matter of fact, really, rates have not been direct drive to inflation. Inflation is much higher than, than rates are right now. Um, so that's what we did. We devised a product that um, moved with rates. Um, and um, I'll say for plugging my firm, Simplify, what we do, which is so unique and special, is we have the ability to go to Wall Street and trade with the big boys. We have the documentation to trade all the, all the fun stuff, I, I, as I would say, and put it into an ETF and make it available to civilians, ordinary investors, non-professionals. And what we do is we, these fun little goodies we get are generally positively convex. It doesn't mean we're buying options all the time, but they're positively convex. What that means is they go up faster than they go down. So when we give you an ordinary beta of some risk that you want to get, we then fool around with it and make it so it goes up a little faster and down a little slower for very small cost. That's really what you should be doing um, right now in your portfolios um, because you want to go and, and you still want to have, don't, don't go to cash. You want to have the beta. You never know when it's going to happen. But if you go cushion the downside, accelerate the upside for a reasonable fee, that's a good deal. And, and, and that's why I came out of retirement to join this firm. And that's what we do. We have very clever ideas and we have the, and we have the unique ability to go to Wall Street to get these products. Um, um, our ETF, the uh, Radiant ETF, it's, it, it's very clever. I highly recommend owning it if you have rate risk. And you should own it at 5% of risk. If you have a million dollars, it's a big number, I'm sorry, but round numbers, a million dollars of, of rate risk, you'd buy $50,000. So if we're trading at 65, you'd buy fewer shares, 40, you'd buy more shares. So you do it by dollars allocated to it. Um, I think the best ticket out there right now is actually buying AA rated 22-year callable muni bonds. And I say 22-year because they were 30-year bonds, but they've now gone through. And the call feature, usually these things are 30 years, call protected for 10 years. What I want to do is get bonds that are maybe three or four years to go on the, on, on the call. So there's a lot of optionality to it. Um, and if rates stay here or go back, back, back down again, the bond will get called. But if rates go down hard, this thing goes from basically a three-year to a 
23-year, and you have your rate hedge against it. And that kind of basically gives you this, you know, four, 375, 4% uh, after-tax return, uh, and you've taken out most of the rate risk because muni bonds have gotten destroyed. I mean, I live in California. I mean, I'm buying, you know, double-A, high-quality bonds, you know, 4% coupon at 97. Like, really? Okay. I mean, what's wrong with that? In my bracket, that's over 8%. And 8%, that's an equity return, isn't it? I mean, long-term, what's equity? 8, 9? I'm getting an equity return on a California AA. Now, is California going to the tank? Maybe, I suppose. But I mean, I think I'd rather own, you know, California Munis than Tesla. That went a little bit over my head. So there, there may be some audience members who are, are having trouble understanding that as well. So a call, so municipal debt is not federal debt. It's like a state debt. And it, usually it's tax exempt. Unlike if you own a treasury bond, it, you do have to pay taxes on that. So that, that has that feature. Um, callable is, is like if rates go down, the pr people who issued the bond can call it back. Isn't that optionality for them and your short optionality if you own that bond or no, I'm wrong. Exactly. Yes. And the vols are, we have 150 on the move. So that embedded option is trading at a huge premium. I, look, I am not always a buyer of vol. I can sell vol also. Okay. Like no bad bonds, just bad prices, They're a price where I will sell insurance. Okay. Um, and, and the move at 150 is, is a sell. The embedded option in this rate hedge we have is like only 80. So it's, it's a lot lower. So you're kind of barbelling and saying you're selling a 150 and, or a 120 and you're buying an 80. That's a little too complex. Don't get crazy on me. A muni bond works this way. Um, State of California or you know, Stanford University Medical or LA Airport, um, New York subways, well, that's kind of rough right now. They'll bring a bond for 30 years, callable in 10 years. And they'll bring it at 4% at par at 100. You buy that bond. If rates go down and prices go up, so rates grow 3%, they will call that bond back at 100 and you'll only have gotten 4% for 10 years. They'll reissue a new bond at 3% and now you have to go and reinvest your money in theory at 3%, so you lose. If rates go up to five, you're in that bond for 30 years, and they're going to bring new. They're going to when they bring new bonds at five percent, you're going to be sad because you're only making four. So you lose both ways. Um, they do that so they can have have optionality for their financing, but and then we get extra yield for that over a straight, you know, single maturity bond. Um, mm. And and there are times yeah. you should take that risk as you shouldn't. Also, I think it's important to note that, so like, like you suggested, Jack, the, the muni space, it's not like the equity space. Um, you know, you, there's an exchange and so forth. There's a whole bunch of issuers all throughout the country. You have states, you have, you know, cities and so forth. It, it's a lot, uh, it's, it's a lot messier in the space. You also have like the big issuers. Um, some of them are not good, like New York Transit Agency, who actually had to borrow from the Fed during, um, during 2020. So is there, this might not be something that the readers are the viewers are as familiar with harley do you do you, is there a way to access this through like a financial product or do you would you just go directly to their website and just subscribe to the offering directly in general i like buying new issue bonds from reputable dealers um and so that's fine if you if you want to get a little you know squirrely you can go to like fidelity go to their bonds link type in, I want to search muni bonds, and they'll have like 80,000 bonds there. And from that, you could then sort. 
you want to look at double A, maybe double A plus. Don't get into credit problems. Four uh, percent coupon. You can put that in. Put your state in that, um, or you could buy a general bond if you want. General bonds are tax exempt at the federal level. If you buy a bond in your state, it's taxable. It's tax free for your state also. If you live in Texas or Florida, you don't care because there's no state taxes there. Um, if you buy those bonds, that's fine. Just beware that it'll be very hard to get out of those bonds. Um, easy to buy, hard to sell. So I would not load up on those things uh, with your liquidity money. But if you have 60-40, so you're 40 in bonds, you could take you know five or 10 of that 40 and put that into munis because you're always gonna have some bond allocation. Remember, if you buy it, it'll be hard, hard to, you should expect it could cost you three or four points to get out of it. Yeah, and it is relatively more complex than you know, just buying an S&P 500 stock ETF. So definitely, yeah, it's, a, it's an investment that rewards homework, uh, as many investments do. So Harley, double uh, A 22 year dated municipal debt is something that you're relatively bullish, bullish on. Again, not investment advice. Another thing is mortgage real estate investment trust. That's not uh, regular REITs that own real estate if they own mortgages and they frequently employ leverage to do so. I actually want to turn it to you, Joseph, first, because uh, in your book, uh, Central Banking 101, which I recommend highly, uh, you note that they are mortgage REITs are classic shadow banks that take out short-term loans to invest in very long-term assets. The leverage can be as high as eight to one, and that they technically have no credit risk because they're uh, essentially guaranteed by Fannie Mae, but uh, they are vulnerable to bank-like shocks when they are unable to renew their repo loans, uh, which happened in 2020. Uh, and in 2020, there were significant dislocations, including the usually very liquid agency MBS market. So, uh, Joseph, describe the risks that you see in the shadow banking real estate investment trust mortgage market. And then, Harley, I want to hear why you're so bullish on it, despite the fact that uh, you, you think that the housing market is essentially busted, in your own words. Well, Joseph, when you go in there, comment about the underlying mortgage securities and the REIT, because it's two separate things. Well, the mortgage-backed REIT. What a mortgage REIT does is, as Jack suggested, normally a, a, a normal REIT would raise debt and equity and go buy like a building or apartment building and so forth, and it would collect rent and pass those rent off to their investors. Uh, a mortgage REIT is a bit different. It's called an MREIT in that it will take borrow money in the repo market and buy uh, mortgages, basically. And there are commercial mortgage REITs, and there are, but but the most part are agency MBS REITs. So what they would do is they would, let's say, borrow money in the repo market, invest in agency MBS, which is credit risk-free, and collect that difference. So borrow short, lend long, and because it's cheaper to borrow short than to lend long, you have that spread there. Um, when, mortgage, when repo rates were around zero, let's say in 2020, um, that was a pretty good business. And if it was expected to be zero for the foreseeable future, you could say you could be like a mortgage REIT borrowing around zero, investing, let's say, 3%, lever it up eight times, you know, that, that's a pretty good dividend. And you would, you saw their dividends go up to above 10% back then. But right now what's happening is, well, they're getting hit on their asset side. Uh, M rates have sold off a lot. And to be clear, they hedge a lot of that exposure. So depending on the mortgage rate in particular, that they probably are maybe fine. But also their financing costs are going higher a lot. So repo rates are going higher. They're 3% now, maybe they go to 4%. Uh, you know, I, it seems like that business model would be in trouble when your shorter term borrowing costs are maybe even higher than what you're receiving on the asset side. And you see the mortgage rate stocks selling off significantly. 
Now, Harley, you're an expert in mortgages and, and in rates and so forth. Is this a sector of the financial economy that, that, you know, that might be a bit risky? Or I mean, I don't think it's systemic, but is, is that a place that would, would there be a lot of distress right now? Um, the fine point here is I am not bullish on mortgage REITs. I'm bullish on mortgage-backed securities. I have written favorably about REITs in the past, um, but in the last number of months, uh, mortgage REITs have um, not been a friend. They're probably down 40% or more for all the reasons you've described. Um, what's, thank you for clarifying that, Harley. Yeah, I, I was wrong. Yeah, thank you. I, I love mortgage. I think mortgage-backed securities, like regular you know, Fannie five and a half or fives are, are, are a great investment right now. The commercial mortgages are also folding too, right? So they're, they're probably fine. Uh, for example, I think Blackstone has a mortgage rate that invests in commercial, and, and commercial mortgages are mostly floating, so they they benefit from higher rates rather than the agency stuff. The uh, sorry, the residential, retail residential stuff. Commercial rates are, are another animal entirely, yeah. uh, because you have the economy overall and the you know, the, the hollow office buildings, which I'm, I'm, I'm unclear about. Um, usually, a mortgage-backed security will trade, and I have these charts on my latest commentary. We'll trade like 75 basis points from three quarters of a point over the 10 year. And there's no credit risk in these bonds. Um, they're basically fully guaranteed by the US government. There is convexity risk, callability, similar to the muni bonds. Mortgage are callable also because the homeowner, if he takes out a 4% loan, rates go to five, he stays in the house. Rates goes to three, he refinances and calls your loan from you. So identical process and you get paid an extra three quarters of a point for that. Right now, mortgage bonds are trading 175 over uh, treasuries. This is like, this is GFC stuff right now um, uh, for, for, for spreads to be this wide. Now there is a technical glitch, which I don't want to go into too much, it has to do with the yield curve and everything else, but mortgage, mortgage bonds are, are, are crazy cheap. Now the problem with the REITs is two, twofold. One is rates going higher is bad, but, but as Joseph said, they hedge that out. And even the convexity, they hedge that out too. So they can manage that. The problem is they can't hedge out the spread widening. So if treasuries are down by five points, mortgages should be down by four points, let's say, instead they're down by seven. They've gotten annihilated on that. The second problem is the financing. They were borrowing at two or one, now they're borrowing at three or four. That's going to go and, and cause problems for them. Now, right now, that isn't that bad because with mortgage spreads at 175 and financing at four, the actual spread they're earning is better. So opening a mortgage REIT right now is not that bad a ticket. The problem with the mortgage REITs, we don't, which we don't know about, is this, is they borrow money versus how much money they have. When they take these losses on the spread widening, which is unhedgeable, going from 75 to 175 is unhedgeable risk. That spread is not the actual level, but the spread. That causes the value, the, the, their asset value to shrink. At some point, they are only allowed to borrow, let's say, you know, 40 cents on the dollar. Um, if, rate, if, if that loves losses get big enough, they'll get margin called and be forced to liquidate. This is what happened in March 2020. They were forced to puke out bonds right at the lows, and thus they could not ride the market back up. We don't know how close they are to that. They said that they learned their lessons last time and that they've gotten and they're doing better work and they're smarter and they've locked up financing and everything else. Maybe they have. 
We're going we're to find out, you know, in three weeks when they release earnings. Smaller ones failed, too, in March 2020, some of the smaller mortgage rates. So, yeah, I don't think the big boys fail, but they could be margin called, which means it will be a permanent loss of capital to them. If they don't get margin called, we're going to be OK. This, this will come back. Um, the spreads will tighten back in and they'll make all the all the marked market money they lost. They'll make that. But we and, and, and they may even have to cut the coupon because of the rising front end rate. OK, so be ready for that. But if these spreads come from 175 back to 100, there'll be a massive run up in the NAV. Hmm. We just don't know if they could survive this trough right now and, 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 and ride it out. I mean, this is, this is the classic case of, you know, my kids used to say, Dad, why don't you go to Vegas? Bet on red. If you lose, double it up. If you lose, double it up. <laughs> the answer is, well, I might run out of money before, before the casino does. That is the mortgage rate problem is, can they ride out this drawdown? And we don't know. If there is a meltdown in the mortgage REITs or some other part of the shadow banking system, what is the Fed going to do? Are they going to only do, quote, liquidity injections that's like QE but not QE? Or are they really going to materially stop and say, you know what, we, we're, we're going to stop hiking and we, we may even cut? Yeah, Jack, so to your question, if something happens in these markets, so we're accustomed to the Fed coming in and saving the day, which is what they did back in March 2020, even in the agency MBS market. They came and they provided liquidity, helped a lot of these mortgage REIT guys you know, be able to sell their mortgage-backed securities and get some liquidity. So... That if something were to happen in these markets, it would place the Fed in a pretty awkward position because one, they, inflation is too high and they want to get it down. They want to have restrictive monetary policy. But if they go out and start buying assets, that's a very different message. So, uh, And of course, they can't just do nothing because if something really breaks that could spread, there could be serious dislocation, financial crisis. And it's kind of a similar, well, it's the exact same problem the Bank of England faced last week. Something was disruptive in the gilt market. They couldn't let all their pension funds go insolvent, uh, but they also didn't want to be perceived as uh, doing QE again. At the end, they did commit to buying assets to stabilize the market with the promise that they would unwind that later on. So. If something were to happen, I think an easy way the Fed or other central banks could is be willing to buy the assets, just provide an emergency dealer of last resort function, but do it at above market rates. So instead of just going into the market and doing QE uh, at market price, say, hey, I, maybe I'm willing to buy all the treasuries uh, at 4% yield uh, for the 10-year, something like that. So in a sense, kind of like yield curve control, but a non-biting ceiling instead. So that's a way where they could provide liquidity to the market, maintain financial stability, but also keep a restrictive monetary policy, uh, which is to say some form of yield curve control. So you think they'd buy bonds before they would cut rates in an emergency? Uh, yes, that would be a market functioning issue. You know, the, it's like the Bank of England being dealer of last resort rather than just take the nuke out and just cut interest rates for everyone. Um, that, uh, that, that seems to me to be more of a surgical way to do this. And you think they do that as well uh, uh, by just yeah. regular treasury bonds as opposed to doing special financing and all these sort of facilities that they rolled out in March well, It depends on the market. Sort of, if, yeah. So what I was thinking of was if there was disruption in the treasury or the NCMS market, if there was disruption in the corporate bond market, we have precedent for that. What did they do in March 2020? They come up with a special facility willing to buy both primary market and secondary market corporate bonds, but at above market rates. Do the exact same thing. That does uh, basically 
does two things. One, it provides emergency liquidity, so no one goes bankrupt. You don't have a huge panic in the real or financial economy. Two, uh, you, can, uh, you can set the rate that you're willing to provide emergency liquidity. It would be an above market rate, so you can still have a restrictive and monetary policy. It won't be, uh, it's still on the path towards reigning in inflation, so to speak. The, like the Bank of England governor of the 1850s or 60s, Walter Behat, um, I can never pronounce his name. I guess he's, he's, he, he, he said to lend against good collateral at a penalty rate. Exactly. Of a, of a central bank. Exactly. So it's exactly as you mentioned, Harley, but instead of just being the lender of last resort to the banks, it seems what we've been doing for the past 20 years is to become lender of last resort to everyone. Like think about uh, to the primary dealers, for example, to the money market funds, using the FX swaps, lender of last resort to the foreign central banks, and most recently to the corporate, uh, corporate, corporate sector by, by that uh, primary and secondary corporate, uh, corporate facility. So it, it seems like the Fed and maybe central banks in the developed world are just expanding their role to being lender of last resort to everyone. And maybe one day I could get a loan from the Fed too. (laughs) (laughs) At a penalty rate though. At a penalty rate, of course, of course. Harley, I posted on Twitter that I was doing this interview and I asked people for questions. I was amazed at, you know, people posted like 70 questions. Wow. One of them wanted me to ask you, Harley, about the the blow up in the guilt market. Uh, And, you know, given that it was this uh, liability driven investment and they had all these, um, derivatives, these, uh, these uh, interest rate swaps, basically, that gave them that exposure and that you are you know, one of the world's foremost experts on that. I'd love your perspective on that. Um, and then someone else wanted to know if uh, this sort of U.S. Uh, does yield curve control uh, on, on Treasury rates in order to prevent something like what happened in the gilt market, what, what would that do to uh, your, your, your seven-year, 20-year swaption that, that has done so well this year? The LDI question in, uh, in uh, the UK, I'll kick to, to Joseph. That's his, that's his department. Um, as far as, uh, I, mean, look, I think the Fed's supposed to steepen the yield curve out, which is the opposite of yield curve control. Um, I think uh, everyone's happier in a positive curve. The banks are happier. Pensions, everyone's happy with a positive curve. So if you want to go and release pressure on the markets, they should actually actually buy the front end and sell the back end. Um, uh, my uh, my ETF would be if the yield curve. I, I, there's a yield there's a, a yield curve component uh, in this ETF because it's a seven year option on the twenty year rate seven years from now. And what you've seen happen is that. Um, when this product came out a year and a half ago, that forward rate was maybe 35 basis points over the spot 20-year rate. It's now 40 basis points under that rate because of the curve inversion. If the curve had moved parallel this whole time, uh, this ETF would be 20 points higher. That's, that, that, that's how much the curve. If we were to get some kind of release where the Fed goes and the back end goes up or the front end comes down, um, this product will ricochet higher because there's a huge curve bet in this thing. It's a wound up spring. Harley, I only know this from, from reading your work, again, convexity maven, but when you own an option, you're, especially long dated options have a lot of uh, volatility exposure, Vega, you're, it's very tied to, to interest rates as well. So when, you, when interest rates are low, um, you, uh, I, I guess, I, guess I, I, I thought I had it, but I lost it, Harley. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll help you out. Uh, a trade that I had been hammering on for four or five years now was buying 
long dated options on European equities. And the reason why is that the dividend yield, like the coupon on a bond, was like three, three and a half percent. The borrow rate was negative 50 because the Europeans had negative rates, right? Um, that makes the forward price, and I, I've written about forwards on my commentary. I go to the Maven classroom and look it up about forwards. Uh, that makes the forwards really, really funky because effectively you're earning three and a half and borrowing money at negative, which is a brilliant idea. Um, and, and, and that's why that these trades look so so fancy. You, I, you can go and buy an at-the-money call, sell a 27% out-of-the-money put for five years for zero cost. That was because of the, the forward. Um, my ETF has the same dynamic to it, where there's a, a curve component in there, not as big, but there's a big curve component to it, um, which is, it's, it's not good or bad, it just is what it is. Um, and um, the thing is, the curve is massively inverted now. I mean, as a, a chart I have in my yeah. last commentary, you're like negative 90 on 530s. I mean, these are numbers that are off the charts. Um, they could stay here for a while longer, but they're not staying here for long. This I can promise you. Curves don't stay this inverted for long. Something will happen because it's just um, a rather obnoxious thing uh, for, to, to, to manage. So, Harley, would you say that it's more like an emergency cut by the Fed to, 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 to steepen it, or maybe the long end blows out like it, like the bank giving, like in the gilt market, and that steepens that way? Bear a bull steepener. I, I think, I, I, I think it's, a, it's just a, it's a static steepener. I think is we don't get lower inflation in Jan, Feb, March. The Fed gets to 460, but then stays there and just stays there. They don't hike, they don't cut. The back end says, uh-oh, we were looking for cuts, we're not getting it, and you get the back end to go up. That's how I think it plays out, but I, I just don't know. This is why I like owning this whole thing in an op in option form, um, as opposed to, to a, you know, direct ownership of a long or a short. I, I wanna have it in optionality because I just don't know. The I, I curve this inverted, it's like a wound up spring. It's got to unwind somehow, some way. Um, um, usually what happens is we go into a recession, stock market crashes, the Fed just jam pulls the front, the, the front end down. But as I said, they're kind of stuck with this inflation number where I'm not sure what they're going to do. I mean, if we still have a five inflation handle and we go into a hard recession, like, they, they got a problem, man. Right. And Harley, what's so perverse is that the yield curve inversion, particularly the 10-2 spread, uh, is a harbinger for a recession, yes, but it does not mean that we are in a recession now. The, before we go into a recession, the yield curve will re-steepen, uh, maybe because short-term rates collapse, because the Fed pivots, or because long-term rates rise. Uh, that is that is actually when you're in a recession. So that could, could mean that a recession you know, doesn't start until the summer of 2023, which I think is way more bearish for, for risk assets or assets of all kinds than if we were already in a recession now. Fed now says GDP is positive. The recession is over now. Yeah, yo, I forgot. I, you totally, thank you. Thank God, Joseph. Yeah. It depends if you're going to say when I'm in the recession real time or when the referee calls it, which is usually six months later. So usually the, the, uh, the conference board or whoever it might be, they say the recession started six months ago. Which, thanks, guys. A little, little late now. Lindbergh landed. Um, so it's really a matter of like, when, when the actual recession happens, um, the, the, the Fed will start, you know, start cutting then. But it, it actually will not be announced until later. Mm, mm, thanks. Uh, 
Joseph, I've got a few plumbing questions for you from the audience, and then I want to ask Harley about his metaphor that Jay Powell is sort of the uh, captain of the Titanic, or maybe he's playing, he's conducting the band of the Titanic. But before we get to that, uh, Joseph, can you give us what, what happened with the guilt market in uh, liability-driven investment? I feel like, Joseph, the bear case that you made for fixed income this entire year, which has proved so right, it actually didn't happen. It was actually worse than that. It wasn't that oh, there's all this supply and demand wasn't there and the central banks are buying. That was, of course, like the, the kindling. But the real match was this incredible uh, derivative of liabilities that, you know, I'm sure Harley knew about it. I'm sure you knew about it, but like I didn't know about it. You know, people who read the Wall Street Journal, a lot of them didn't know about it. And uh, yeah, guilt yields went from 3.9% to 5.1% in a day. I mean, what happened? Yeah, so I'll tell you what, what I saw. I read about this, and this is my sense from what I'm reading. I, I, I wasn't there, but it seems like Jack, as you mentioned, there there is well, there's two things. One is that they had a lot of pension funds who have longer dated liabilities. For example, in the future, someone's going to retire, and they need to pay out their retirement benefits. So that's a long dated liability, and in order to match that liability, one of the things they would do was they would uh, buy longer dated gifts and they would also get more interest rate exposure through derivatives. So they would received fixed and pay floating. Um, so they have some leverage there through, through their exposure to derivatives. And it's basically sound management from their perspective. They're matching assets and they're matching liabilities. Um, however, because the interest rates went up so quickly there, they were getting margin calls on their derivatives positions. And in order to meet those margin calls, they had to go and they had to uh, put up cash. And how do, they, how do they get cash? They sell their gilts. So they're selling their gilts to get cash to meet margin calls. But when you sell gilts, interest rates go higher, right? Because you're selling. And that means you need to put up more cash. And if everyone does this at the same time, you kind of had almost like a, you know, a fire sell like dynamic where everyone is selling to get cash. Uh, but when you sell, interest rates go higher, so people need to put in, put up more cash for margin. So they, they were kind of in that doom loop until, um, oh, similar to what happened for the mortgage REITs uh, in 2020, of course. And so what happened was the Bank of England had to step in and stabilize the guilt markets. So I think this example is really good because it shows us what happens when interest rates go higher, not just in the U.S., but throughout the world. There's a lot of people who hold these sovereign uh sovereign liabilities like treasuries, bonds, gilts, and so forth. And they hold them as liquidity, as safe assets. But they're not actually safe because they can have equity-like price volatility when rates go higher. If you're looking at a 10-year treasury or a third-year, Jim Bianco has a great, great graph showing how uh, the market value of all this fixed income is going poof. So when, you're, when, you ha when your safe assets are not actually safe, then you're uh, you're losing money, and maybe eventually you might have some solvency issues, um, which is w what could have happened in the uh, pension funds if the Bank of England didn't step in. So uh, to me, that suggests that eventually the government was going to have to come in and backstop yields at some certain level to prevent this widespread uh, distress in the financial sector. At what level? I don't know. It seems like the Bank of England has come in and they said this is too fast or the level is too high. And we could see that happen in other markets as well. So, Thanks, Joseph. Another plumbing question I have is we're recording this on Thursday, October 6th. In eight days uh, on uh, Friday, October, uh, I, guess, I guess 14th, uh, banks, U.S. commercial banks will start reporting their earnings. What do you expect to see there? Uh, people say, you know, if you turn on CNBC, you, you probably hear it all the time, that 
rising rates are good for banks, and they are because they can make loans at, at higher at higher spreads. Um, but do you think that there will be any losses in banks of just they they owned treasuries and you know they owned a ten year treasury and at one hundred and five and now it's at ninety nine or is that sort of not reported? I think banks are banks are really sophisticated. They, they hedge that. I, I wouldn't expect to see losses from stuff. There are um, there may be smaller banks or other financial sector entities who are not as sophisticated, or maybe they wanted to take a little bit more risk. Uh, but the big banks, they're, I, I think they're very tightly regulated. They would hedge that. So about bank earnings, you're exactly right that when interest rates go higher, banks, uh, you know, maybe they earn more money. For example, if you have cash on deposit at the Fed, which let's say JP Morgan is a few hundred billion there, you were earning about zero. Now you might be earning 4% just on that cash at the Fed. So that's one aspect, the um, interest income. But there are other aspects of banks as well. For example, uh, they have a lot of capital markets and a lot of advisory stuff. So when you have a slowing economy, those businesses, they don't function as well. There's not as many m and deals. There's not as many IPOs. So it, it's not all good. And it's, it's not all good for them. It really depends on your business mix uh, for a bank. And banks, the big banks are pretty diversified. So um, higher rates into a slower economy is not unambiguously positive. It's positive for some, some of their businesses. Uh, another final plumbing question, Joseph, is the reverse repo facility over the past week has gone from something like 2.4 trillion to uh, 2.2 trillion. To what do you attribute that? Um, yeah, someone on, on Twitter wanted me to ask you about that. Oh yeah, no, let's just uh, quarter quarter end is well, quarter end. You usually get a big jump in reverse repo facility. The seasonality there. So we're just seeing the unwind. I still think the reverse repo facility trends higher. By the end of the year, it's going to be yielding at all. Three, four percent, four percent probably. A lot of people are going to move cash to the money market funds, who will have nowhere else to go by the reverse repo facility. Lon, you can get four percent in a money market fund. That's a pretty good deal. There's no interest rate risk. You have you know, next day liquidity. I, I think it's an attractive asset. My final question: I want to explore this metaphor, Harley, that you have uh, in in your latest piece on convexity maven. Uh, you said that the Fed has effectively purchased a berth on the Titanic after it hit the iceberg. Mr. Powell is conducting the band while the market is sending up rescue flares, and we all wonder who will find a lifeboat. Harley, you are literary, you do like to write, but you're not a dramatic person, and I don't think you would have written such a sort of a, a, a doomsday uh, warning if, if you weren't seriously worried about this. So uh, explain what's going on in the metaphor, and uh, how do people ex escape from, from the lifeboat? <laughs> Another good turn of phrase, by the way. Um, the idea was being that when, when we went and, and started QE, you know, a dozen years ago and the money printing, you know, lots of us said, the Fed's printing money, we're going to get inflation. Were we wrong? No, it's a decade early. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm you Chicago, man, okay? You, you, you print money faster than the economy, you get inflation. I, well, what's there to this whole thing? It's not that hard to figure out. The, the timing could be rather suspect. Um, it took the Roman Empire 400 years to collapse. So, I mean, why can't it take us you know, 10, 20 years for it to bleed into the system? Um, but the thing is, now this haystack of money um, was lit by Trump and Biden. They both gave money out. They both gave out tons of money to people during COVID and after. Um, and, and that money, uh, it, 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 it got spent finally. That was the helicopter money that the Fed had already printed. And now the fire, the barn's on fire 
And, and then the Fed shows up. Like, in theory, they're supposed to be there hosing down the haystack before the match comes in. Like, that's supposed to be their job. The, the old expression is uh, taking away the punch bowl when the party is about to get started. Um, you don't come, so he, they're, they're here late. Now, is it their fault? Ay, ay, ay. I mean, we had COVID, man. It's like, I, I, I can't really say that they're dead wrong. Just a little wrong. They should have started cutting rates a year before, or basically a year before. They didn't. So now he's on the on the boat. The boat's going down. Uh, what's he going to go and do? I, I don't know. You know, it, it's um, and, and I, I, you know, a lot of people call the Fed dumb or names. This I don't believe that the Fed is dumb at all. I think they have a a utility function that is very different than ours. Okay, we want to go and trade or make money and invest, but that's not their gig. Their gig is like you know. Managing the, the, the global economy and the dollar is the reserve currency, which, by the way, is our most important power source in the world. Everyone uses dollars. We control everything. We don't want to give that up. I, I agree. I, you know, I accept that. I, I don't actually know if they're smart or dumb. I think some people are. I like Jay Powell, though. I think he's a smart guy trying to do the right thing. Uh, yeah, so I think he's trying to do the right thing. It's going to be hard, because, but uh, I have confidence in him. Hmm. Appreciate it. Well, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure having you both. My final question, uh, one-word answer, what do you think the terminal rate is? The terminal rate is how high the Federal Reserve will get before it stops uh, hiking and, and ultimately will cut, like the peak of the mountain, if you will. As of the afternoon of October 6th, the uh, peak of the mountain in terms of the terminal rate is 4.50%, I think, in the, the spring of, of 2023. My question is, what is the Joseph Wang terminal rate and what is the Harley Bassman terminal rate? Joseph, I think four and a four and a half sounds right. That's why I think Harley's trade buying two year. It, I think it's a good idea. It, it makes sense. There's some good uh, risk reward there. Making no comment on the back end or the stock market. I think the front end of four sixty. I mean, I I, I, I think that's going to be it. I think it's going to be it because I think the economy goes, goes into a recession. You know, in that time frame. Mm, wonderful. Well, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, everyone should uh, check out your work, Harley on Convexity Maven, uh, the, your work that you do with Simplify. Um, on Twitter, you are uh, at Convexity Maven. Uh, Joseph, you can be found on uh, Twitter at FedGuy12. Your writings can be found on FedGuy.com. Uh, and your book is Central Banking 101. Guys, thanks so much. Uh, looking forward to doing this uh, sometime soon. Thank you. There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks Daily Newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks Daily Newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.